This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Don Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today works at the Thinkwell Group, a global experience design company. She's an award-winning creative director for cultural attractions and theme parks and has been in cahoots with the likes of the Smithsonian, Google, Universal, and Space Center Houston. She shines a light on immersive audience experiences, decolonizing museum exhibits, and telling more inclusive stories that are accessible to all. Stick around for my conversation with the muse of amusement, Cynthia Sharp. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, or captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. I have a lot to live up to with that intro. There's nothing to live up to. You earned all of that. (laughs) Everything is true. I think it's cool that you work in theme parks and attractions. I don't know a lot of people that do that. It, It is a pretty sweet gig. And it's one of those jobs or career fields where when I say what I do, people are like, people do that? Like, these things don't spring fully formed from the earth like a goddess from Zeus's forehead. Somebody's got to make them. I know, but isn't it amazing? Like when I was a kid, I did some magic tricks and I was interested in juggling and theater. And nobody said, you're going to make money doing that. (laughs) (laughs) I can have a job doing this. I was actively dissuaded in high school from pursuing arts education by the guidance team at my high school because it would damage my GPA and threaten my ability to get into a good college. So you can't take more than one year worth of theater arts and drama and acting. Tell me a little bit about your description of Thinkwell Group is education as well, right? Previously, I was principal cultural attractions and research which functionally meant I'm a creative director or project executive on our museum, zoo, aquarium, big cultural events like World Expo 2020, now 2021, thanks rabies, in Dubai, worked on the London Olympics, big cultural things like that. But also on the research side of things, I'm the person at the company that teams would come to saying, okay, we are doing this thing and it involves Batman and this list of other characters What's the right way to refer to them so that we're grammatically correct and also accurate to the universe? Okay, that's amazing. Okay, sure. I can tell you that. You know, we're working on a Monkey King project, and I'd like to know if there are female characters who are not she-demons or virgins. Is there anything in between? I can get you that info if it exists. Okay, I want to know, Are is there anything in between? No, really not. Okay. Okay. Well, look at that. We've already gotten value. Everybody has learned something. Learn something new every day. Always have a learning and growth mindset. Well, before we talk about projects, let's just step back to the general sense of people gathering, because over the last couple of years, it has really taken that industry and held it down a little bit. 
But in general, I'm more interested in the nature of humans coming together and natures of humans waiting in line for something with expectation. Everything you described, aquariums and space centers, are all about people wanting to be somewhere where something cool is going on. What is that about in our DNA? You know, ultimately, humans, I feel, are compelled to share stories, whether it's the I and my friends hunted this mighty mastodon. We killed it and we were victorious. And now I'm painting it on a cave wall to look, me and my friends got into this super trendy restaurant. And here are the beautifully crafted plates of food on Instagram. We want to like talk. We want to share stories. We want to share our triumphs. We want to be the heroes of our own tales and share those far and wide. And so pretty much Everything I do, whether it's working on World Expo or working on a hardcore content-focused natural history museum in the southeast of the U.S. or working on a family entertainment center in China, it's all about story. It's all about the stories that we share because people don't want to hold a story just close to themselves and keep it jealously and, and not share it. You want to you blast that stuff. Doesn't the story somewhat become the event? Yes, absolutely. The story becomes the event. And I think that's actually one of the biggest pivots we've seen in our industry the past couple of years. And it, we're, the ship is still turning. And that is this shift from a very passive story approach guided by people who came of age of storytelling, where it was, you go to a movie theater, you sit down, you watch the movie, you receive it the way that the creators intended to growing up on video games and open world exploration and having more control of the story yourself and seeing yourself in that world much more actively. And so now when it comes to location-based entertainment, it's no longer stand in line patiently, wait to go on the ride, go on the ride, talk with your friends about how awesome the ride was. It's, it's about the story of the ride and how you see yourself in it. Right. It's about why are you going to this place? Even with a thing like a museum, which in the old days, people went in and looked at artifacts. Now, they're really the central character. And as they walk from room to room or exhibit to exhibit, everything that tracks along there is a part of that story. Exactly. Exactly. Museums have undergone this tremendous shift from this very, we are the experts, you will sit there and you will passively receive what we are telling you about this object, this story, this content. And now they are, whether they like it or not, museums are a much more participatory experience. And very much like the Disney wait in line, right? The queue becomes as important as the story because you often will spend 90 minutes or two hours in the line. And I remember when I was a kid, we couldn't wait to get on the Jungle Cruise or whatever that was. And that part of the ride was super fun and funny, but we were basically just traversing back and forth in a queue with nothing going on without an occasional character coming by and getting a picture. But isn't that a whole art of its own? Like, give me a sense of what happens in your world when you start to think, oh, people are going to wait an hour. It actually starts long before they get to the sign that says, your estimated wait time from this point is an hour and a half. 
the story starts the first moment somebody encounters the thought of going there. The first time you click on the museum website or the theme park website, you see an ad, you click through, you book the tickets. Your anticipation and your journey begins long before you're waiting in a line. And so we have to consider that entire arc of experience and every moment on that path is an opportunity to really engage somebody and deepen the relationship and world build and get them totally bought in and excited and jazzed or completely piss it down your leg. Um, so at the same time, we're thinking through the creative side of it, we have to balance it off with the operational side of it. What is it like getting from parking to security? What is the experience getting from security to ticketing? How hard was it for me to get these tickets? So how bad a mood am I in when I get to the place in the first point? I have to consider all of that. And then you get to the experience of approaching that ride or that attraction or what have you. And so the anticipatory buildup starts long beforehand. You have to really carefully nurture it and build it at every step of the way. And then somebody gets in the line. And that line has to be really, really smartly designed to do exactly what you need it to do, both operationally, you need to hold several hundred people and move them along very efficiently, but also experientially. If you've been to Walt Disney World within the past several years, the experience of being in the line on the Winnie the Pooh ride, for instance, is radically different than the experience of being in the line for Expedition Everest over in Animal Kingdom. Expedition Everest is an absolutely brilliant leveraging of the tropes and conceit of museum design to tell the story before you get on the ride of place and the Yeti and building the anticipatory fear and all of that stuff it gets you into a headspace of what the ride's going to be. The Winnie the Pooh line is equally brilliant and completely different. It's not about building up anticipatory terror or anything like that. It's about keeping small children occupied while they have to stand online and doing so in a way which is fun and easy for any kid to clue into and play with, but not so, we call it sticky. If it's got a really, if somebody wants to stay and do something for a really long time, but not so sticky that then as a parent, you're like, I need you to stop playing with this because we're about to get on the ride. Come on. You don't want the box to be a, more exciting than the present. Exactly. You don't want to turn your guests into cats. And so the buildup of the line is huge. And you have to think about what you're trying to achieve with the time that somebody's standing there waiting in line. What's the point of that line experientially before the ride? And then, you know, the standing joke is exit through retail. But what is the exit experience like? You don't want it to be like, and now we dump you out blinking into the sun with no theming whatsoever. It's great that you thought you were just in Hogwarts. Welcome to Transformers. You know, there's a reason those two rides aren't right next to one another at, you Universal. It's a whole arc. And that arc lasts far longer than the attraction or the ride or the exhibit hall itself. Right. When I think of the signage, when you're approaching a new space or the entryway of going under something that welcomes you to the new world in whatever that is, it all is a part of it. It all gets thought out. So you mentioned world building. And I guess, is there a checklist of going through your senses of what you see and what you hear and what you smell? Yes. So many disciplines. So many disciplines. And then are you working with a lot of different kinds of designers to do that? Give me a sense of how many people might be involved in the design of a world of any kind. When we're recruiting at colleges and universities, 
we like to say, what you do, there's a place for it in theme parks, whether it's marketing or finance or graphic design or costume design or textiles or material science or any of that. It is an incredibly wide range of skills and talents that are required to not just make a theme park, but even, you know, make a museum. If you think about a natural history museum with rock work and trees and stuff like that, the disciplines that are involved in that are tremendous and vast. So in terms of specific design, actually, I'm going to widen it out in specific educational background, we're really seeing a sea change in the industry. At the same time, there's this proliferation of college and university programs that are explicitly about experience design. We are also seeing companies look at what equity means in a hiring scenario in terms of educational requirements. And we are now seeing companies pull back on, you have to have a bachelor's, you have to have an MFA, which I think is fantastic and wonderful because that is a choke point of inequity in a huge way. But in terms of skills and talents, it is everything from beautiful illustrators to armies of people who are geniuses with AutoCAD. It is costume designers, it is composers, it is music historians and cultural anthropologists who can help us be spot on accurate with stuff because we don't want to be culturally appropriative in what we're creating. And we need to work with and for the communities that we are representing in our work. I know that you're a big advocate of that and that people who you may not feel welcome in a museum or in an attraction that has been built in some kind of systemically inappropriate way. Yeah. Absolutely. I applaud you for that. And it's nice to know that you're a steward that's out there as a spokesperson. And I do know you're developing mentorships in those areas. So we'll talk a bit about that later. But it's incredible that it's not just commerce driven, that it's not just how do we make more money at this? It's how do we have the person experience this in the way that helps them grow their life in another way? Late stage capitalism is a thing. Not going to lie. Money is a very powerful motivator. I understand the reason. Yeah. But we are seeing change. Finally, gloriously, wonderfully. This is a little bit of an old example, but when Disney rolled out the Doc McStuffins show on Disney Junior, where the lead character is a young black girl who aspires to be a veterinarian, they moved half a billion with a B dollars worth of product about that character in under a year because there was such a dearth of representation in children's toys at that age demo. And there is a lesson to be learned from that. The market is hungry and the market is no longer satisfied with the same voices and the same exclusion. And that is a very, very powerful motivator. But we are also seeing there's, particularly on the museum and cultural attraction side of things, there are institutions that are doggedly trying to do the right thing and are really engaging in some really terrifically hard work to take a long, hard look at themselves and where they have screwed up in the past. But for every one of those museums, there are 10 British museums who are like, no, I'm going to keep holding on to this stuff that we collected through imperialism and conquering. There's an African proverb that states, and until the lion has a voice, stories of safaris will always glorify the hunters. And I think that is sort of so telling about the idea that they 
stand on tradition or they stand on, but this is how we, no, we always had these statues in here. Growth is so important and new voices coming in and explaining to people why it's even there in the first place. It's a challenge. And the idea that you have to really face your own contribution to it, even if you're unaware of it, right? Even if you're many generations from when the problem was, you still benefit from it. It still serves its original purpose. Just like, oh, I always went there with my grandpa. Well, your grandpa's intent wasn't the same as yours or what the world needs now. Yeah. Things as basic as, so I'm in a leadership position at Thinkwell. I graduated college without student loans. I don't have that burden. I never had that burden. But I need to recognize in our hiring process that that is a radically different burden now than it was when I graduated in 1994. The student loan scenario is really, really different. And that if we're going to help create a more equitable industry, we need to not reflexively put requirements for you need to have a bachelor's, you need to have a master's in our job postings. We need to strip identifying info about colleges and universities out of submissions so that we're not going, oh, well, they went to such and such, so we know they're good. Not everybody can afford to go to an $80,000 a year college. Not to, By the way, not to mention the fact that kids have different skill sets in social media and other things that they do not learn from the university. And so those things are critical in marketing, in PR, in all kinds of ways of drawing a crowd with a tweet, rock concerts and things that fill stadiums in hours because somebody knows how to get to everybody quick. That's the gold standard. And that person doesn't have to have any kind of formal education if they know how to hack it. You know, one, one does not get a bachelor's in TikTok and Snap. And yet let's look at how quickly teenagers were able to organize to overwhelm the Tulsa rally ticketing scenario during the 2020 election cycle. Yeah. Let me go back to something you were saying about issues with museums. And we don't have to rat out any specific museum, but what's the complication for museums and what they display? Because there's stuff, of course, that's been there historically and there's stuff they're acquiring now. It's easier to deal with incoming items than items that have been there for a long time. So how do you, as a creative director or a top thinker in approaching as a consultant, deal with addressing that? How do you draw attention to it and then say to them, can we rethink this? That is a complex question with many layers to it. I'm going to tackle it in a couple of different ways. Okay. I'm challenging you because I do think that anybody could learn from it. What's the diplomacy? Yeah. So it's a different conversation if we are talking about designing a really specific exhibit and drawing upon the collection and, hey, we have these objects versus if I am working with a museum strategically and looking at their collection and saying, you have some issues here. You're, you need to decolonize your collection, your practices, the way that you work. And that latter one is a much bigger, much more strategic and much harder lift because it is a real process of confronting one's past that one is not always comfortable doing so. The former is actually much easier and I can give a really specific example. I've got a museum client and the content of their experience touches on some absolute lightness rod parts of American history. And they have in their collection a, if I'm recalling correctly, it is blood splattered, but I could be wrong, Ku Klux Klan hood and robe. And they are arresting objects. You cannot look at them and not have a visceral physical reaction. But I had the conversation with the client right off the bat. I was like, these are some of the most powerful things you have in your collection. And you need to know, I will not advocate for showing them. Because to see 
them is to do harm to some of your guests. Some of your guests will come in and this will be proximal and real and re-traumatizing for them. And it's all well and good for us as people of identity groups who haven't necessarily been targeted by white supremacist hate that way. I'm Jewish, so I have, but you know, I know that my client hasn't. You have a very different perspective on these than some of your audience does. And you need to put yourself in the shoes of, in the headspace of who is harmed by this object? Who is harmed by seeing this? And consider that question. Really, I just, I don't mean to interrupt, but it's really an extraordinary dilemma because it does have some historical significance. And I wonder when I think about a Holocaust museum and I go into a museum of tolerance and I see piles of shoes, I am devastated by how that represents human beings. And so I think, I don't know that I would have ever felt it so much if I didn't see that. So I guess the question is, is there a way to section museums or have a fair warning or I don't want it to be gratuitous, but at the same time, we do want people to know how horrible these things are in some way. So Right. And in this particular case, the thrust of the museum is not a Holocaust museum. It's not a museum dedicated solely to anti-racism. That's not the focus of the museum. It is a part of their overall history and narrative. And so you do not come into that museum in the headspace of, and today I'm going to encounter white supremacism face to face. That's not the headspace you're in when you come into that museum. That makes sense. So maybe the idea of an exchange with a museum that this would be a value to or not right. I understand. And it goes back to what we discussed earlier. The experience starts from the moment somebody encounters the thought of coming to your space by communicating really clearly to would-be visitors what this museum is about and what they're going to experience. You help set the stage. You don't go to the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. and expect all puppies and rainbows and unicorns and kittens. You know that you are going to have a hard, unflinching at points time of it. And even there, there are warnings aplenty before you encounter the Emmett Till material and content. And there are very, very robust reasons for that. And I applaud them for the way that they have handled that. But again, that is a museum where you go in expecting to have that kind of content and that kind of not hiding it out of politeness, but rather this is going to be hard. You need to be prepared for it sort of conversation. In our case, the client was completely there with us and totally understood what we were saying. It was like, absolutely. It centers the wrong people. It centers the people who would have worn that hood and robe as opposed to the people who were harmed. So that was a really positive outcome there. But when it comes to the larger issue, how do you decolonize a museum? There are entire conferences and books and PhD theses and all kinds of stuff about how do you decolonize a museum, particularly since there are plenty of people out there who do not believe that decolonization needs to happen or who view it strictly through the lens of, well, that's only history museums or that's only places like the British Museum with their collection or natural history museums with regards to indigenous people's artifacts and things like that. But pretty much all museums stem from the white perspective. In the vast majority of them in North America and Europe, there are, of course, exceptions who were founded specifically to be of, by, and for specific groups and voices. But I started my career at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. And when you look up in that glorious central rotunda, there is a long 
along the balcony, there are names of luminaries, titans of science and industry ringing the building. It is a just litany of dead white guys. It is a profoundly white Western perspective on science in every possible way in that institution. And don't get me wrong, I love MSI. They do fantastic work. They have inspired millions of people to try something new, to love science, to pursue science. But their origins, they are rooted in a very white Western view of science. Decolonization is not just about Benin bronzes. It's it's about all of it. Well, I applaud you for wanting to tell more inclusive stories and your mindfulness, working with people who have unconscious biases as well as biases that are based on unsettling viewpoints, like people who don't think there should be any change. It should be uncomfortable. People who are afraid of discomfort are not growing at all, and they're getting in the way of progress. Well, let's talk about another thing about making attractions accessible to all. What about architecture when you're dealing with disability and those sorts of things? What challenges or what things do you have to present in that situation where you go, can people touch this and get hurt on it? Can people make it up this ramp? There must be another thousand things to think about. Maybe you can shine a light into some of those corners that people don't think about at all. Right. Anybody who's ever gone to a place with attractions with like rides or shows or what have you, you have probably seen the giant panel of text of like, if you have any of the following things, don't go on this. And wow, is that disheartening. Ultimately, we want and we have not achieved this historically. (laughs) It is a journey. Ultimately, we want everything to be seamless. We want it to be optimally inclusive for everyone. My 18-year-old has a mobility disorder, among other things. You would not be able to tell it by looking at them. They do not use a mobility device, but they cannot reliably make it through an entire day at a theme park without their back and their legs starting to go. They have a balance disorder, they have some muscle tone issues going on, all kinds of stuff. That said, the sensory input, the vestibular input of going on a ride is fantastic. So we are big theme park junkies now. By the end of the day, we're asking for the easy to get into ride vehicle at the end of Seven Dwarves Mine Train at Disney, which is if you ever pay attention to it, it is differently designed from all of the other cars on the ride vehicle so that it's easier for somebody to get into. It's easier for somebody to transfer out of a wheelchair. It's easier for somebody who's got a mobility disorder that's not using a wheelchair or another mobility device. But when they were in fifth grade, they shattered their foot in three places right before the spring break trip to Disney World. And it was the first time that I experienced a theme park with somebody using a mobility device because the kid was in the wheelchair and it was demoralizing seeing how much worse their experience was. Kudos to the cast. They were great. They were phenomenal. They would ask, what's your favorite car on the ride? And they would put the kid front vehicle or back vehicle or what have you. But you miss so much of the experience going in through the wheelchair entry. You miss all of the pre-show. You miss all of the setup. You miss all of the story. And then it's the, you literally hear people getting angry that there's a ride stop while you're trying to get into the vehicle and it's hard because you're having to transfer out of a wheelchair. You've got a big clunky cast on your leg, you know, that kind of thing. And just, it wasn't Disney's fault. I'm in no way, shape, or form blaming them, but it was illuminating 
how pale and lackluster an experience it was for them compared to what a typical time at Disney was for us. And it was 100% about the fact that the kid was stuck in a wheelchair. Yeah, if, if, if everybody grumbles when they stop the ride for you to get in, you automatically feel a huge amount of judgment. Yeah. And now imagine being the 10-year-old hearing adults complaining. And now imagine that you're the 10-year-old who is not going to get the cast off their leg, that they, that you will always be the kid that the ride is getting stopped for, that people will always be angry that you want to have the opportunity to have joy and fun. It's horrible. And so like our holy grail is how do you design it so that everyone is equitably accommodated, that you don't have to go through a side entry or a back entry, that you don't have to sit in this one spot in the theater because that's where you're going to be able to fit your mobility device, that you don't have to call or email two weeks in advance to book the sign language interpreter for the show, that you can decide on a whim. You know what? I want to go see the bird show. I want to go to the museum theater piece on Darwin, but I didn't book a BSL interpreter in advance, you know, because I'm in London on vacation, but I can still go and enjoy it. How do you design it so that it is 100% seamless and nobody is ever othered by any step they have to take along the way. That's the holy grail. Yeah, I get it. And that's amazing. I don't remember the name of it, but Paul Newman's organization created uh, tree houses that a wheelchair could go to. Do you know that? Yeah. What a big deal to put a kid in a wheelchair up in a tree and be able to see from the sky and to have the same advantage where whether your feet are on the ground or not doesn't make the difference. I think that's a really extraordinary thing. The Hole in the Wall Gang Camp uh, was a nonprofit founded by Paul Newman. And part of what they did was this completely accessible treehouse. They worked with, I want to say, the treehouse guys on it. <laughs> that very much impresses me about Paul Newman's organization and the people behind it. Everybody is capable of being that person that says, I want to give this experience to everyone. I feel like you're very, very mindful of your guest, or we'll call it an audience, and their experience in the storytelling. And are you surrounded by colleagues that think the same way? Or is that on a daily basis, a little bit of a challenge? Kudos to the team at ThinkWell. We are a ridiculous assemblage of nerds. And we are all so incredibly focused on the guest. And one of the really great things about working with the team there is we come from such different backgrounds. I'm trained as a human geneticist. I have no formal training in design or what have you. One of the art directors I work with really frequently, her undergrad was in architecture, not in illustration or graphic design or anything like that. One of my fellow principals started in the stunt show at Universal and got into writing that way. We all bring such different backgrounds and different perspectives and bring our wildly different life experience, whether we're a first-gen immigrant or Jewish or queer, married with kids, what have you, that guest doesn't mean the same thing. So the team is really good at asking the questions of to a client, who are your guests right now? Who are the guests you're not getting? What's the difference between those audiences? And acknowledging that guests or an audience aren't a monolith. It's not like everybody's the same and everybody's coming with the same perspective and the same hopes, wants, and fears. 
But how do you consider that range of human experience that's coming to your institution or your venue or that's going to come experience the stories that you're telling? We worked with a museum years ago, and they're a longtime client. And we tend to ask those guest and audience questions in the very first meeting. And the answer they gave us rocked our world because they started describing an audience that their member families, they're local to the extremely wealthy neighborhood that the museum is in. The kids go to private preschools. At, you know, The average household is two parents. They're married. Their average annual income was over a quarter of a million dollars. They both had at least college, usually graduate or professional degrees. The kids more often than not had a nanny. They were enrolled in at least one activity, you know, kind of thing as four-year-olds. But the audience coming on field trips, the main public school system they were serving at that point in time, it's changed since then. But at that point in time, functionally, a third of third graders in that public school system were illiterate. 90% of seniors, high school seniors in that school system flunked the state science exam on the first try. They were serving this wildly bifurcated audience. And what is a welcoming and successful experience for a four-year-old who's got tennis lessons and goes to a private full-day preschool, what's welcoming and successful to them looks radically different than what's welcoming and successful for an eight-year-old who's at a free or reduced breakfast and lunch school and is having problems reading. Yeah, that's quite a um, combination to be considering. Yeah, designing for that's a real challenge. Oh my God, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, no, but I get it. And it's so important. I mean, you can't have the Museum of White Privilege. We got plenty of those. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know we do. I don't know if you could read the sarcasm filter on my microphone, but <laughs> I had it turned all the way up. Uh, given that disparity between those guest members, what kinds of things do you think you could do to approach or that you do do to approach those kinds of solutions? So in a case like that, we look for where commonality is first and foremost. And there was this really interesting point of commonality, which was neither group of children were playing outside. At the time of this project, it was when the book Last Child in the Woods was really gaining traction. And among the parents of very privileged four-year-olds, there was this fear of the outdoors. Private preschools in the area were advertising that their playgrounds had all rubber chip and no wood chips so the kids wouldn't get dirty kind of thing. This notion of go outside and play by the creek until I call you for dinner. No, 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 that was not happening. But for the kids coming from the public school system on field trips or on the weekends with their families, they did not live in areas that had significant green space and they did not have easy access to significant green space. So making the concept of the outside accessible and interesting and engaging for both groups was a natural point of commonality. Go play outside. The outside is awesome. There's lots to discover there. That was equally valid for both groups. But the other big thing that we did, and this is radically different than some of the exhibits the institution had previously, was we sat with their, particularly their education team, and we said, we want as few words in the exhibit as possible. We want it to be as devoid of written language as possible, because that barrier of literacy is so huge. It is such an immediate signpost of this space is not for you. And so the text that is in the exhibit falls into one of two categories. It's really simple and directive, emerging sight words level of simple and directive. Look, jump, touch, really simple words like that. But we also leaned into the vernacular of National Park Trail signage. The signage, which by its very form, connotes 
hi, I'm informational and I'm aimed at the grown up in your group because the parents of particularly the more local families had this sort of overwhelming fear of, well, what are we supposed to do in the space? How am I supposed to teach my kid? How are they supposed to learn? Well, like you let them play. They learn through play. Learning through play is really valid in early childhood education. But that particular parent audience, back to the point about the audience is not a monolith, that parent segment was absolutely terrified of what are we supposed to do in here? How do I how do I make this enriching for my child? So that trail signage quite literally arms parents on here's how to engage with your kid in a museum space. Here's how to ask them questions that are open-ended and exploratory and play-based, as opposed to here is a PhD thesis on the natural ecosystems of Georgia, because this is at the Fernbank Museum. Here's a PhD thesis from the Ecology and Evolution Department. Please read it to your child. So by leaning into a design motif that served the needs of that specific audience segment, but wasn't threatening to the core target child audience segment, we were able to meet the needs of those differing audiences, you know, the kids versus the the parents in the group or the teachers in the group. I think about being in a botanical garden or something. I'm always looking at the flower and saying, hey, that looks like a fried egg. I don't, the thing below it <laughs> that says what the actual thing is. The Latin name? That's not compelling for you? Forget that. You know, I'm never going to retain it. So it's just in the way of seeing the flowers to me. Mm -hmm. And you walk away not knowing, why does it look like a fried egg? How cool would it be if there was interpretation there that was like, hey, it looks like a fried egg to you, but it looks like this amazing, weird color sunburst to bees. So they love this flower and what have you. How cool would it be if they interpreted it in a way that... Or it's defensive. Maybe it's defensive because most animals are worried about their cholesterol and so they stay away from the eggs. Avoid eggs. It's all a scheme by the milk board to get people away from eggs. I'd like to draw attention to something else that you're involved in. You're the co-founder of Harriet Bee's Descendants. And I do know that Harriet Bee is Harriet Burns. She was one of the first women, I think, that worked with Walt Disney as an Imagineer. Tell us a little bit about her and then what your organization does. So Harriet Burns is absolutely a trailblazer in the industry. One of the first women hired by Walt Disney to work at Imagineering. And there is an iconic photo of her in immaculate sweater and pearls and a skirt and heels up on a ladder, brandishing a drill and do an install. And the distance the industry has come from that moment in time where a woman who was absolutely a genius at what she did and a luminary in the field still had to conform to these notions of what does somebody look like when they're doing this job? You know, like how far the industry has come since then, but also how far we have to go really was inspiration. There was leading up to the 2016 election, Nicola Rossini, my co-founder and I had noticed a really strange trend. Both she and I had over the course of our careers, pretty consistently had emerging professionals coming to us for mentorship, mid-career, you know, as we got older, mid-career professionals coming to us for coaching or advice. But 2015 into 2016, we and some other more senior women in the field were like, why are women whose jobs we aspire to coming to us for coaching? Why do we have C-suite people and VP level people reaching out to what's going on? And it really was this growing sense of unease and unwillingness to continue to put up with 
the status quo on a variety of fronts from gender issues and racial issues, pay equity, what have you. When you're talking projects on this sort of size and this sort of scale, it takes a long time to see change reflected. And people were flat out out of patience. And then the 2016 U.S. presidential election happened. And it was like, well, fuck, pardon my French. We speak French here. Yeah. We're not going to get any help from federal policy over the next four years on any of these issues. So it's on us. And we literally hit the point of we built a website. I informed the three partner owners to think while I was doing this as a side hustle. And to their credit, they were all three of them were like, that's awesome. That's great. Let us know how we can support as my finger was hovering over the go live button. By the way, can I just state that side hustle heavy on the hustle? Yeah, <laughs> so much hustle. HBD provides support and material in a variety of ways. On the most obvious and basic of levels, there's networking. And we have been really pleased and gratified. Leading up into COVID, we saw uh, about 25% of our membership make career moves due in no small part to the support that they got from the network, whether it was sharing job postings, doing resume reviews, interview coaching, or direct like, hey, I'm hiring somebody, here's the job posting kind of thing. But we also, during COVID, an awful lot of the hustle happened through the network um, and a lot of the emotional support, particularly because our industry was so hard hit. We offer mentorship, both one-to-one and group mentorship on a topic basis. We help folks with conference session submissions, journal articles, white papers. We, to a certain extent, act as a speaker's bureau. We have conferences reach out to us and say, who do you recommend? Particularly in terms of any of our members who are in academia, service is a huge part of getting tenure. And part of that is speaking at conferences or getting publications is also a huge part of tenure. So we help out in that regard, but also in terms of lifting your visibility within the industry, speaking engagements are a huge part of that. And so helping get a wider variety of faces onto speaking panels is a big part of what we do. And we offer sessions. We have spoken at a variety of conferences, the Association of Science and Technology Centers, the American Alliance of Museums, IAPA, let's see if I can get the name right, the International Attractions and Amusement Parks Association, which is a giant nerd fest of like 42,000 people in a non-COVID year the week before Thanksgiving, everything from tiny family entertainment centers and museums, zoos, aquariums, to giant theme parks and water parks and haunted houses. Nerds, nerds on parade. It's super nerd. But for their HR committee, we did a half day training in their annual HR intensive for them. And so we offer training through conferences. We do guest lectures at colleges and universities. We work one on one with companies who are developing a DNI program at their company and offer guidance and support on that. So our basic idea is that in non-COVID times, let me be clear, in non-COVID times, 850 million visits to museums in the U.S. alone. That's more than every major professional sporting event combined. In 2018, 7% of the world's population went to a theme park operated by one of the 10 largest theme park operators in the world. So that's not 7% of the world went to a theme park. That's 7% of the world went to a theme park run by this group of companies. What we make is seen by billions and 
billions of eyeballs. And so if we can move the needle on our internal processes, on the work of how we do the work and our creative outputs, if we can make a museum exhibit that is co-created from the outset with the people and community groups whose stories the museum is trying to steward, if we can create a theme park that is co-created from the beginning with experts in the cultures whose stories are highlighted, if we can have the hero on the ride not always be the blonde, blue-eyed wunderkind, we change the narrative. We change what people see as being the hero. We change who they automatically think who the villain is. And the guest has to see themselves as a hero. Yeah, I referred to my kid earlier and their disability. They were 17 years old, 16 years old, before they saw their disability represented in a positive light in popular media. They went pretty much their entire childhood not seeing themselves. Now, multiply that across every Black kid who's never gotten to see themselves as a hero, as every Muslim American kid who has grown up seeing themselves always cast as the terrorist. The potential for cultural change through museums and theme parks and location-based entertainment is tremendous. It's on par with video games and the movie, the TV and film industry. Well, I think what you're sharing gives people a lot to discuss. You create dialogue. I would encourage folks to look into Harriet B's descendants and to look more into the Thinkwell group, but also to maybe follow you on Twitter. I know you're an active Twitterer. Is that the right phrase? I don't know. I feel like I should warn listeners that it's like 50% multi-tweet screeds and 50% <laughs> otters and F-bombs. So okay. Well, okay. Be forewarned. All right. Well, you're an authentic person, and we understand that what you say on Twitter does not come from the company. <laughs> it does not. Or the foundation. It's Sin Sharp, C-Y-N, which is the first three letters of your name, and Sharp with an E on the end. And they can follow, and they can find out more about a reformed genetics nerd, mother, knitting, embroidery, gaming nerd, and all the other things that you talk about there. And I, what I loved about it is it says all tweets are my own. That This is your voice out in the world and not some assistant that's filling in the gaps for you. Every, what is an assistant? Where do I get one of those? Who wants to work with me? Nope, it's, it is unvarnished 100% me. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will always hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas under the savvy producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing under the steady hand of Marcus Siniskalki. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help us grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun. As in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Stare.